Romans chapter 14, and just to give you a uh, heads up, I'm going to read an extended portion of this text, all right? Actually, into chapter 15. Romans 14, starting in verse 1, Now accept one another who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge judge the servants of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stands he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another, and another man regards every day alike. Let each one, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. He gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might uh, be Lord both of the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow uh, to me and every tongue shall uh, give praise to God. So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block uh, in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but to him who thinks anything is unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him whom, for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God uh, for the sake of food, and all things indeed are clean, but they are evil uh, for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything which your uh, which, uh, your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves." But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but it is written, The reproaches of those who reproached thee fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, 
that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind uh, with uh, one another, according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may, uh, with one voice, glorify God and the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and the Gentiles and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I have given praise to thee among the Gentiles and I will sing to thy name and again say, uh, uh, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with the peoples, uh, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, uh, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, there shall uh, come uh, the root of Jesse, and he who rises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll stop right there. Tonight, obviously, we return back to uh, uh, Romans 14 here in, uh, our, in our study. And, and this section that I read from verse 1 of chapter 14 all, all the way through chapter, uh, verse 13 of chapter 13 is, or, or verse 13 of chapter 15 is really a new subsection here in the book of Romans. It's one of the longest parts of the book, uh, and it is... Uh, 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 a whole section kind of closing the application portion of the book of Romans. Now, I think it's very interesting and, and significant that the Apostle Paul spends so much time here uh, at the end of the book speaking to the issue of the danger, uh, dangers to unity in the body of Christ. Dangers to unity in the body of Christ. So much time discussing uh, our uh, general behavior uh, towards each other and our relationship with each other in the body of Christ. Now, way back in chapter 12, when Paul started working out the practical application of doctrine, he spent only two verses discussing our relationship with God, based on the truth that he had just unfolded in the previous 11 chapters. So two verses on holy living and holy thinking. And then he spent six verses discussing the issue of how to think rightly about ourselves, realizing that we as a body in Christ have been given gifts that we should use those gifts to serve each other. He spent nine verses uh, uh, speaking on loving each other in the body of Christ, and then another five verses discussing how we should interact with those who are not of the body of Christ, uh, how we should interact even with those who are enemies. Then you come to chapter 13. Uh, He spent seven verses speaking on the issue of our relationship to those who are in authority over us, and then another three verses uh, again, considering the issue of loving our neighbor as ourselves. Then four more verses on proper conduct as Christians in light of the imminent return of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you come here to this section, starting in verse 14, again all the way to chapter 15, verse 13, and he spends 36 verses discussing one issue. And again, it's the dangers to unity in the body of Christ. So we as Christians are to accept and support each other even when others don't think or behave the way that we think they should. So he spent 35 verses up to this portion of Scripture on nine different topics. 
on the issue of our relationship to God, uh, the, the issue of our mind, thinking rightly about ourselves in the body of Christ, uh, issues concerning our spiritual gifts, uh, issues concerning loving each other in the body of Christ, how to interact with those who are not in the body, how to respond to those who are in authority, how to love our neighbors as ourselves, uh, how to live properly in light of the imminent return of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, 35 verses from chapter 12, verse 1, through chapter 13, verse 14, on nine different topics. And again, starting here at this last major section of the book of Romans, 36 verses on one issue. Again, the dangers to unity in the body of Christ. 36 verses on how we have to learn to live together and accept each other, support each other in the body of Christ, rather than tearing down each other or trying to change each other when we don't agree with certain non-essential issues that often arise in the body of Christ. Now, why does the apostle give so much time and attention here discussing this issue, discussing the the need for those in the body of Christ to accept those with whom they disagree on regarding less essential matters? Why does he spend so much time? I would suggest to you in the context of the book that he's trying to get the attention of the Romans, right, of the Roman believers to whom he's uh, addressing the letter. Therefore, I would suggest he's trying to get your attention and my attention uh, on the very same issue. He wants to leave with us one final thought uh, as he's getting ready to close this book down, one final thought of something tremendously important to him, again, before he closes the letter and starts talking about his future plans, and then he gives a final greeting here in the text. Why else does somebody spend so much time talking about a particular issue? It's because the person believes that the issue they're speaking of is of vital importance. So it would be in our best interest for all of us in the room to maybe just readjust ourselves, sit up a little bit straighter, and and give a little more heed uh, and careful attention to what the Apostle Paul is about to say here, uh, because it has to do with the health and unity uh, of our body, our our fellowship, and what he has to say is tremendously important. And all I'm going to do tonight is I'm just going to set this section up for us, because it's kind of long, but I'm just going to set this section up for us. And then we'll start diving into it in greater details over the next few weeks. So tonight is really just going to be an introduction. It's going to be an overview of the section, uh, more than really a true exposition of the text. Because I think there's some underlying issues that we have to consider and need to be understood before we can grasp uh, the whole and understand what he's trying to say. Now the truth is sometimes sin works its way into the fellowship and destroys unity in the fellowship. But most often what you see destroying a fellowship... And uh, and the fruitfulness of a local body of believers is not so much sin, but it's more on the uh, the issue of attitudes. Attitudes that people have towards one another in the fellowship. Certain attitudes, not overt sins, not the saying that certain attitudes aren't sinful, but not certain overt sins, but certain attitudes towards each other in the body of of Christ that kind of creep in and threaten to destroy the fellowship, thereby stopping the message and the mission of the church, which again is to proclaim the gospel to the whole world. So verse 1 here really sets the tone, or is the thesis statement, if you like, uh, for the argument that's that's coming up in this section, in in the next uh, 35 verses after this one. Again, Romans 14, verse 1 says this, Now accept one another who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. The ESV renders it like this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not... But do not quarrel over opinions. The NIV says, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. And then the New King James Version says, Receive one another who is weak in faith, 
but not to dispute, uh, not to disputes over or over doubtful things. So this is the general principle that really uh, guides the rest of the section. The thematic statement, if you will, that says we're to accept one another, the brothers and sisters in Christ, we're to accept those whose faith is weak. And again, without passing judgment on disputable matters, without passing judgment on one's opinions, or without passing judgment on doubtful things. Now, I don't know if you've ever come across this translation, but there's a man named Goodspeed who who wrote a translation a, a while back in the 40s or so, and he says it like this. He says, treat people who are over-scrupulous in their faith like brothers, do not criticize their views. So to have scruples just means that you have a certain ethical objections and certain to certain actions. It means if you have scruples, it means you're principled. You hold the dictates of your conscience. It means you have an unwillingness and a misgiving to violate your conscience on certain issues, and that in of itself is good. But within the body of Christ, within our theological understanding of the truth, there are certain issues that cause differences of opinions, certain issues that are perhaps neither commanded nor forbidden in the Scripture, matters of personal preference for which each brother or sister in Christ needs to come to some kind of personal understanding and belief on that issue. So the question is, how will we deal with those issues? How do we deal with those issues in the body of Christ? How do we treat each other? What kind of attitude will we show each other in the areas regarding those things that are disputable matters? in the areas regarding one's own opinion or in the areas regarding doubtful things. And really the bottom line issue or the bottom line question is really how do we agree to disagree? Right? How do we agree to disagree? How, how do we treat in the, uh, each other in the body of Christ who think or act differently than we do? That's really the predominant issue in the section uh, that's going on here. That's the theme about, of, of what Paul's about to unpack, so to, spe- uh, so to speak, in the next section. Because we need to realize in the body of Christ... And in this fellowship, we're made up of a tremendous diversity of individuals. We all come from different backgrounds. We all are of different ages, different maturity levels, different personalities. We come from different cultures. Even those of us who've grown up within the United States, and we have some in the room who grew up in other countries. Again, even within the United States, depending on where you were raised, there are certain cultural standards that perhaps would not be acceptable in other parts of the country. If you've lived numerous places, you understand that. The north versus the south, the the east coast versus the west coast, etc. Some of us come from different religious backgrounds. Some of us have come out of Roman Catholicism. Some of us have come out of uh, uh, Protestant uh, liberalism. Some of us uh, have come out of very legalistic churches, legalistic homes, backgrounds. Some of us have come out of charismatic backgrounds. Some of us were converted out of unbelieving homes, uh, some of us have had the privilege of growing up in Christian families. And perhaps some of us have come out of cultic groups. I know that for a fact. Certain cults that people have come out of. Uh, at the very least, some of us have come out of pagan backgrounds with no religious instruction. So all these kind of issues and all these kind of backgrounds with a variety of different people make up uh, considerable differences of who we are in the body of Christ. As we all come together corporately to worship Uh, together again in the body of Christ. So some of us may have walked with the Lord for uh, 30 or 40 or 50 years or longer. There may be somebody sitting (coughs) right next to you who just came to saving faith within the last few months. 
Some of us are in, in the room on a Sunday morning or in our 80s, some even in our 90s, some of us in our teens and everybody else somewhere in between. So there's a diversity that makes up a local congregation that has to be recognized, understood, and accepted by everybody. In that diversity is really a great testimony of God's mercy to all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. That the, Lord, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not just for one kind of people. But the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is for every man as it reaches into every tribe and nation and tongue and people. And it's the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that comes and draws people together from dissimilar backgrounds and unites us together uh, with a profound unity and a genuine fellowship as we worship and serve the local church and worship and serve together in the local church and worship Christ. I mean, do you ever stop and think about that on a Sunday morning? Just think about... Again, we all come from so many variety of different areas, backgrounds, things, and, and we're all here together, right? The, the one thing that makes us common is our love for Christ. So you have to realize that's the church right up front. We're, we're a diverse group. Uh, again, we have various backgrounds, various likes, various dislikes, various preferences, various traditions that we've come from, etc., and so forth. And so if we're not careful, there's a tendency to elevate some of our preferences and some of our traditions evil, even to the, to the level of uh, first-order doctrines that we believe everybody else should believe and everybody else should follow, uh, but that might not necessarily be true biblically, right? It might not even be necessary, but not even be true biblically, because there's issues within the realm of orthodoxy, uh, that uh, theological issues that we can agree to disagree on. At least that's what I believe. Now, you might disagree with me on that, but you shouldn't. You should agree with what I say, right? <laughs> Right? We get that, right? There's preferences, traditions, and it's fine for us to, to hold on to the, some, some of those. But we have to, what we have to be careful to do is not push or press upon other believers in the body of Christ to believe like we do. We, we can't insist that everyone sees everything our way on non-essential issues. We're not talking about essentials, but non-essentials. Because if we do so, then we, then we may cause disunity and an unnecessary division in the body of Christ, which will negatively affect our witness to an unbelieving world around us. Because God has not intended for his church to be divided based on personal preferences or, or traditions that aren't found in the scripture. And again, as I've stated before, there's another issue that's on the table here, a negative contributing factor that every one of us has to, to recognize and be aware of uh, even though we may be saved, we all are dealing with the issue of our flesh, right? Our unredeemed humanity. So we come from a variety of backgrounds, a variety of situations. Uh, we're all dealing with the issue of our flesh, and we all have our preferences and ideas on how we think things should be. So there's a lot of issues that we really need to be aware of, or at least sensitive to, as we gather together as uh, the body of Christ. So we need to be careful how we walk together, how we live together. And, and we need to have the right kind of attitudes that we should show biblically right, biblically right attitudes that we should show towards each other. Again, Romans 14.1. Accept the one who's weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. So again, within the body of Christ, there's basically two kinds of people. You have those who are weak, and you have those who are strong. Right? You have those who are weak, those who are strong. But those who do not understand the liberty that they have been given in Christ through the gospel, and they're still bound by certain religious or cultural practices that they were a part of before coming to Christ. And then you have those uh, uh, believers in Christ who are more mature, and they understand and enjoy the freedom that, uh, that Christ has given to them. And you have these groups within every local congregation. And each group has to recognize and accept who's in the room for who they are. 
uh, not uh, not allow unnecessary discord to interrupt the fellowship uh, uh, in, in the congregation. For example, in the early church, there were those who came out of a Jewish background that came to saving faith in Christ, and they just couldn't leave some of the ceremonial laws and practices that they had grown up with all their life. They came to Christianity, and they still felt somehow the, the need to participate in Sabbath observances or, or, or mosaic dietary laws or even sacrifices in the temple. Just like there were Gentiles in the early church who had been converted out of pagan backgrounds who maybe come out of certain uh, rituals or customs and backgrounds in, in their former worship of false gods, and they have may, may have found themselves repulsed by being a part of uh, anything that uh, might even closely resemble uh, their similar uh, past practices. Now, again, another example in that kind of category would be eating meat offered to idols. Uh, that, that's a real issue in the early church. And the reality is idols are nothing uh, because they don't exist uh, other than the physical uh, manifestation uh, because the truth is there's no other God except the living God. And a meat and meat that's offered to an idol is really meat that's offered to nothing. It's just meat. So a Christian, by way of uh, the, the scripture, was free to eat meat, and that wasn't improper that it had been offered to an idol. However, if you have a man or a woman who's come out of a pagan background, and, and that was part of the practice, and other things that went along with that, that may have their conscience violated by eating uh, such meat. Therefore, for the sake of their conscience, uh, you, it, you would uh, not be in their best interest for you to offer them uh, at your dinner table meat sacrificed idols. Right? Just because you're a stronger believer and you realize there's really nothing wrong with doing that or eating that. Just like it might not be in the best interest of someone uh, out of a Jewish background converted to Christianity to offer them a ham sandwich or a BLT or something like that that violates the kosher dietary laws. Uh, these kind of things really don't make up the kingdom of God. These kind of things are not what the church is about. Nevertheless, they're real practical, tangible issues that need to be dealt with in an understanding fashion, especially by the more mature believer. Now again, some of you may have grown up in religious background where, where playing cards or the length of your hair or drinking alcohol or all of that kind of activity was strictly forbidden. And again, these, these uh, issues were in your background raised to the level of gospel orthodoxy. Meaning that if you played cards, if you had long hair as a man, if you drank alcohol at all, then obviously you weren't saved. At least that's what you were taught. And again, that's what many people have believed. And now you come here or another church and you come in contact with people who grew up from a different background and they think these kind of things are not an issue whatsoever. So again, the question on the table is how do we live together? How do we get along? How do we walk together in a manner that's pleasing to God and yet protects our consciousness, that protects the unity of the fellowship so that we don't beat each, up, uh, beat each other up, as it were, over these kind of secondary issues? For again, many in the body of Christ, this is a real challenge, a real issue. The NIV version, that's why I read all these different versions. I'm going to read through them again. The NIV says, uh, 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 accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. James Boyce, who I'm uh, a favorite, uh, a favorite commentator of mine, I like to read him a lot, and he kind of hits the nail on the head, I think. Uh, he says this, and he's very insightful. He says, 
to use our common expression, the problem is that Christians are always dumping on one another. Right? There you go. There's a, there's a euphemism, right? Christians are always dumping on one another instead of getting on with living their own lives as best as they can to the glory of God, or, or, or which is also necessary, living as to win a non-believer to Christ. They're always wasting their time trying to find fault with one another. They do not trust, this is important, they do not trust what God is doing in other Christians. We have to stop that behavior, he says, and we have to stop that behavior, Paul says, uh, that we must accept and support one another if we're to uh, hear and heed uh, what Paul is saying here in the last major section of uh, uh, the Gospel of Roman to the Romans, right? So, so that, that's a tremendously helpful statement. Christians are always dumping on each other instead of just living our lives. And again, letting God work in the life of the other people around us. He says we're wasting our time when we're always trying to find fault with each other. So the truth is, as the church, we need to get onto the bottom line issue. We need to realize as the church, what is the issue? What's the, the purpose of the church in the world? Or else, if we don't do that, then we're wasting our time. And there's a whole lot of issues that we can waste our time on. The purpose of the church in the world, obviously, is to reach the, 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 the lost with the gospel of God's goodness, the gospel of God's mercy and grace to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that men might come by uh, to a knowledge of the truth by way of repentance and faith in Christ. That's why we're left here on the earth. We want to gather together and worship together. We want good teaching when we come together. Uh, we want to enjoy the fellowship. I mean, those things are important, but it's not the ultimate purpose for why the church has been left in the world. So if we want perfect worship, perfect understanding, perfect teaching, perfect fellowship, then we're going to get that in heaven. You're not going to get it here. It's just not going to happen. Now, if God wanted us to have that perfection in all these different areas, uh, the, the, uh, immediately upon conversion, then he would have taken us immediately to heaven, but he didn't do that. He left us here. So he left us in the world for a purpose. He left us in the world to witness to his goodness, to his mercy. Therefore, we have to be cautious again how we live with each other, how we interact towards each other, how we act with each other before an unbelieving watching world. Because if we act selfishly or unlovingly towards each other, if the strong look down on the weak in, in contempt, if we all start insisting on our own personal uh, preferences, then our actions may indeed stop the mission that we have, and it may void the message of gospel reconciliation that we are to deliver to the world. So if we digress into a group of people that's always fighting with themselves, wanting our own way, and again looking down on those who are uh, believe differently than we do, then I would suggest we're in error and perhaps doing more harm to the gospel than good for the gospel. It's kind of hard to present the gospel of reconciliation if we don't get along, right? It's kind of hard to present that message if we're all fi always fighting amongst ourselves. Therefore, we need to be careful that our actions don't turn the non-believing world off to the message of Christianity. And we have to be careful that our actions don't confuse the message of what Christianity is. We need to be careful that our actions don't confuse what the message of Christianity actually is. Again, some of us in the room grew up out of legalistic backgrounds, and Christianity was presented uh, to you as not doing this thing and not doing that thing. Rather than primarily repenting from sin and believing upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, alone as Savior and Lord. So what a certain group tends to do within the body of Christ is, is they turn Christianity into nothing, uh, uh, nothing more than just moralistic behavior. Do this thing, don't do this thing. And, and when you turn it into moralism, it confuses the issue, confuses the message of the gospel. On the other hand, we have to be careful, especially, I think, in this 
accepting age or accepting generation. We're talking about this this morning in the elders' meetings. What some of the younger folks in the room tend to accept versus what some of us older would not accept. Uh, this is a very accepting generation. That could be beneficial. But that could be very problematic. Because if you accept everything, then you fall into the era of antinomianism that says do whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. And then there's a methodology that comes along, and it's been very popular for a while, that says as the church, we have to act and be as much as the world is, uh, as much as possible as the world, in order to reach the world with the gospel. And the sad part of that methodology is, uh, at least in part, is it never seems to get around to the gospel. It's always doing this or doing that, uh, trying to, to copy the world, and that too is error. So you have to be careful. There's a fine line here. What's the purpose of the church in the world? And again, the issue of the gospel is the gospel always is distinctive. The gospel calls men and women out of their darkness into the light of the truth. The gospel calls men and women to forsake all, to repent from sin and come to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, to put their faith and trust in him and him alone. So the issue with the gospel is Jesus Christ. Therefore, everything we do in the fellowship, everything we do in the world towards the unbelieving world should first and utmost have our focus on him, the person of Jesus Christ. Every, every gospel presentation must not be focused on externals because the manifestation of sin in everybody's life is different. But the presentation of the gospel must not be focused on the externals, but must begin focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Because it's Jesus Christ who takes care of all the externals and the internal issues in a man or a woman's life when they repent and come to faith in Christ. The things that we tend to see and get upset about as believers, and rightfully so, are are, uh, symptoms of the inward problem. The inward problem is sin. The only way that sin can be dealt with is through repentance and faith in Christ. So if we're always trying to deal with external issues, uh, you know, make America a moral nation, we're never going to get to the proper, uh, we're never going to get to the goal of seeing men and women repent and come to faith in the Savior. And once they come to repentance and faith in the Savior, God changes, he takes up residence, and God himself changes uh, people's hearts from the inside out. And all the external manifestations of sin tend to go away, especially when a person has their focus on, on the person of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, so, so again, I, I think we just need to present the truth, present the person of Christ, and, and, and uh, trust that God is going to work in the lives of his people. Uh, they may not be as polished and cleaned up as we would like them to be, but God works in the lives of his people, which just means we just need to be uh, tremendously gracious uh, with people all around us. So if we're ever going to be a proper witness to the world, to declare the glories of the most wonderful person, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we love, then we need to get on with that process of doing that very thing. And part of that is we accept each other in the body of Christ. The true believers have tr- who have trusted and put their faith in the person of God. And again, not worry about all the uh, preferential and non-essential issues that we tend to get so hung up over and, and spend so much time, at least in some quarters, uh, arguing about. Uh, we need to realize that if God accepts a person in the body of Christ, therefore we should also. Right? If God accepts a person in the body of Christ, therefore we should also. And we should realize that we're really not in the position to judge a servant of the Most High God. We're not the standard that, that everybody else in the body of Christ must live up to. Jesus Christ is the standard. Therefore, there's a liberty in the body of Christ, and, and, and there's liberty in the body of Christ, and it's okay to have preferences, and it's okay to be strong or, or to be weak. We just need to learn to live in a manner that accepts uh, one another and doesn't pass judgment on one another. 
The ESV says of Romans 14.1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. Now, James Boyce, again, who I just referenced, I'm going to reference him again because I think he's helpful in this section of Scripture, retells a story by Donald Gray Barnhouse. And I think I referenced Barnhouse a week or so ago. Uh, I like both of these guys. Barnhouse was first at 10th Presbyterian. He's the older one. Uh, Barn, uh, Boyce uh, came after him at the 10th Presbyterian there in Philadelphia. And Barnhouse, again, the older of the fellows, uh, these two pastors, was having lunch with a group of ministers. And Boyce is retelling the story. And this group of ministers that Barnhouse is having a, a lunch with, they like to speak despairingly, uh, disparagingly of, of uh, 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 other ministers from other denominations. So Barnhouse one time enters into a conversation with these fellows by telling them a story about a, a pastor that he knew personally. And he told that this man had gone to seminary, this man had been ordained, this man, however, seldom preached. Seldom preached, he never went to prayer meetings. He often failed to attend church, and often failed to attend church for, excuse me, weeks at a time. And what is even worse is this fellow spent uh, all of his time in his library. He indulged in habits that others felt were intemperate and unchristian. And Barnhouse explains that this man that he's referring to lived that way for more than 20 years. So he asked this group of ministers that he's having lunch with, he says, what do you think about this man? To which every one of them uh, said proudly, this man's probably not even saved. Again, referring to this other minister. Now, Barnhouse is a wise uh, fellow. He's an interesting guy, but a wise older man. And he hooked these guys, just like he'd hook a fish. He hooked these guys with the story. And he's trying to make a point to them, which is a good point, I think, for us all to learn. Then all of a sudden, he asked these ministers, uh, who, what they believed was the best concordance available. What was the best Bible concordance? And every man to a man said, Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. And I don't know if you're familiar with that. But it's a, a vast list of Hebrew and Greek words. Uh, every Greek or Hebrew root word which is found in the Bible uh, is in there. It's numbered uh, for ease of reference. I think there's about 8,600 plus Hebrew roots and about 5,500 Greek roots. Then Barnhouse drops the bomb, as it were. And tells them that the minister that they had been disparaging, the minister that they had disapproved of, the minister who they said probably wasn't even a believer, is none other than James Strong, the author of that valuable Bible study help that they so much enjoyed. So again, it seems at times one of the favorite activities of Christians is to attack and defame other believers. To be more concerned about what others are doing and not doing according to what we think they should be doing, is that we're the standard of what is right and wrong in their lives. But the truth is, God has given to each man and each woman in the body of Christ certain diverse talents and abilities and gifts, and each person in the body of Christ is to use them in a manner as they see fit unto the Lord. And whether you or I approve of what others are doing in the body of Christ with their life is irrelevant. Because once a man is saved, he doesn't work for us. Once a man is saved, he's not our servant. He's the servant of the Most High God. I'm quite confident that James Strong missed the fellowship of other believers. But the sacrifice that he made for over 20 years of his life gave to the church an invaluable resource. It cost him not only his time, it cost him his fellowship. It cost him, in some circles, even his reputation. Because the people didn't understand what he was doing with all of his time and with his absences. 
So again, this is an area that we as believers need to be carefully watch over our lives to make sure that our own lives, to the best of our ability, we're living in a way that honors and glorifies Christ, and we let God be the God of other people's lives. And stop wasting our time trying to find fault with others. Again, the New King James Version, Romans 14.1, Receive one another <clears throat> who is weak in the faith, but do not dispute over doubtful things. Now, what I want to do with the rest of the time we have uh, left uh, tonight is I just want to outline the section on how we're going to break it up over the next few weeks. And then look at the principle that I think really is the underlying principle that girds this uh, and holds up this uh, section that we're going to work through, and then, then we're going to be done. <clears throat> now, again, this section runs from Romans 14.1 through chapter 15, verse 13. It divides up very well into four major sections. Some men have divided up to five, but but I think, and, and some people think the section stops at either verse four or verse seven in chapter 15. I think it starts, stops at uh, verse 13. So that's how we're going to deal with it. Four, four sections that divide up very well. <clears throat> four major topics. The first section, again, from chapter 14, one through 12, the first 12 verses out of uh, Romans 14. And the overriding thesis of this section is really accepting each other in the faith and not passing judgment on one another. And Paul's going to introduce two, uh, uh, two topics by way of illustration. He's going to first apply uh, the principle to eating certain foods, and then he's going to apply the same principle to observing certain days. But the overall uh, section teaches that we're not to judge one another, but we're to receive one another with understanding, realizing that whatever we do as believers is for the Lord. Look at verse 7. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself, For if we live, verse 8, we live for uh, the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the the Lord's. Right? We we don't live for for ourselves. We live for the Lord in the body of Christ. And each one is going to give an account of himself before the Lord. It says that in verse 12 of Romans 14. That's the first section. Now, the next section runs from verse 13, chapter 14, verse 13, to uh, verse 23, to the end of the chapter. And this is really a call to understand the nature of the church, the nature of the kingdom of God. It's a call to remember the fact that we're brothers in Christ, that it's just more than a theoretical abstract observation, but it's a principle that really guides our actions towards each other. Therefore, we're not to hinder each other as as brothers in Christ. We're to not hinder each other in our walk with the Lord, but rather we're to build each other up. Look at verse 19. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace in the building up of one another. And then the third section starts in chapter 15, verse 1, <clears throat> works its way, uh, its way down through verse 6. And this section sets up before us the example of Christ, who didn't seek to please himself. He sought to bear witness to those who were without strength, and he wanted to bring glory to God the Father. And then the fourth section concludes from verse 7 through uh, verse 13. And basically says that we as the body of Christ should rejoice in God's uh, provision of redemption, praise him for his mercy, praise him for his grace. So again, four sections, you've got 36 verses speaking on one issue, basically the the unity in, in, in the fellowship, making sure that we're not entering into those things that cause division. And again, all of it flows out of a doctrinal understanding of truth. Now, I've mentioned it several times since we've started into this section, uh, these uh, past couple chapters, chapters 12 and 13. The practical 
application of doctrine finds itself deep in an understanding of the truth of what God has done for us in Christ. It's true we are the church. It's important that we be unified. It's important that we uh, be unified in our fellowship. And there's danger in the body of Christ to disunity. But the ultimate question is, how do we even find ourselves in the church? How do we even find ourselves as part of the called out ones? And the answer is, it's only because of God's mercy to us in Christ. It's only because of God's mercy to us in Christ. So the overriding principle always that, that, that we can never forget in the body of Christ is that God has been so very merciful to us, therefore we must be merciful to others, right? God has been so very merciful to us in Christ. He has loved us. We have to extend mercy to each other. We have a responsibility always to view our lives, our bodies, our minds, our thoughts, everything through the lens of God's mercy to us in Christ. Now look back up to chapter 12, verse 1, because here's the overriding principle. Chapter 12, verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. We have a responsibility based on the doctrinal revelation of the Word of God in the first 11 chapters of the book of, uh, of, the, of the book of Romans, what God has done for us in Christ, We have a responsibility to view all of our life by God's mercies, again, revealed in that text of Scripture, and have God's mercies ever before us, always. We have a responsibility to Him who saved us to present to Him our bodies as living, holy sacrifice. Paul says that's reasonable. That's a a, a, a rational thing to do. It's an acceptable service of worship. We have a responsibility to present Him our bodies. We have a responsibility to present... To him, our minds. We have a responsibility based on the truth of 11 chapters uh, to rightly think about ourselves before him, to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think is have sound judgment. <clears throat> we have a, a burden uh, uh, in our spirit realizing that, that we, because of God's mercy, because of his love towards us, uh, we, we are not alienated from him. That, that uh, uh, overshadows in everything in our life. Uh, uh, we, it's because of God's tremendous kindness towards us. Uh, we're part of the body of Christ. We're members uh, of that body because of God's goodness, God's mercy, God's grace, and, and those things alone, not because of anything that we've done. It's all because of him. So again, we have a responsibility in the body of Christ to always see everything through God's mercies in our own life. We have a responsibility to individual members of the body of Christ to build each other up, to encourage each other, to, to use the gifts that God has given to us to serve one another. Again, you need to be serving somewhere in this fellowship. Coming and passively sitting is not a spiritual gift. You need to use whatever gift God has you, and if you're not sure, get involved someplace. Again, uh, the need was made this morning. We desperately need helpers in in children's ministries. We have a gift that God has given to us and a responsibility to use that gift to serve each other. And we have the responsibility and the great privilege in the body of Christ to love each other. And again, we're just going through all the issues that have been laid out here in chapter 12 and 13, right? We have to love each other, and that love for each other has to be a genuine love. It can't be a hypocritical kind of love. So again, we have to stop finding fault with each other, but rather we have to exercise our responsibilities and generally be devoted to one another in love. We must give preference to one another in in honor. 
We have to realize that Christianity is not just about us uh, and our relationship with Christ. Obviously, there's a personal side to Christianity most, most definitely, but there's also a corporate responsibility, a corporate side. And again, we can't overlook that in the body of Christ. We have to accept each other. We have to be devoted to each other in the body of Christ. We have to give preference to each other in the body of Christ. We have to diligently serve each other in the body of Christ. We have to rejoice in hope, persevere in tribulation, be devoted to prayer, committed to the contributing to the needs of the saints, being, uh, making sure that we're practicing hospitality. We're not to be wise in our own estimation, but we're to be of the same mind towards each other, never paying back evil for evil, but respecting what is right in the sight of all men. And as far as it depends with us, we're to be at peace with each other. And I really pray that we understand these truths and how important they are. Again, God's mercy to us through Christ colors everything in our relationship and our lives together and even in our homes. There's a vital importance to protect the unity of the fellowship. And we would learn that protection. We talk about it a lot. I talk about it a lot to a variety of different peoples, and we always talk about it as elders. But you realize this, that we are in a unique situation in this fellowship, unlike almost any other fellowship I've ever been a part of. There is a nice spirit of unity here. There is a desire to honor Christ and a desire to serve each other and to love each other. That has to be protected. That's a gift. That's a gift. Some of you come from backgrounds where that was not the case in the background of the church that you left and came here from. I'm not sure that was the case in the church I left 20 years ago and came to this fellowship from. It's not like this. It's a sweet savor that God has given to us. And we have to protect that and understand how important that is. And again, a large part of that is just realizing how very merciful God has been to us through Christ. And again, if God has been so merciful to us through Christ, how could we be any less merciful to those around us, the ones for whom Christ has died, and place them right alongside us in this thing called the church? Again, God has commanded us to give up or to give, God has commanded us, and then God has given us an example of how we're to treat each other and how we're to love each other. John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples, if we have love one for another. We've talked about this before. It's not so much our doctrine. It's not so much our, our learning, our intellectualism. It's not our fame or any other kind of thing that really distinguishes us, but it really should be our love. Our love is, is the mark of genuine Christianity, our love for each other in the body of Christ. Again, all of us come to the body of Christ at a level, at the same level. We all stood condemned, all all were lost, all sentenced to eternal destruction. We've all come together with the same desperate need to be forgiven our sin, and we've all come and been redeemed by the same sacred blood, the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless God-man who gave himself for us. And we're all going to the same place, we're all going to the same heaven. Therefore, we have to love each other. We must love each other. We must befriend each other in, in times of trials in our life. We have to be careful uh, with each other's feelings and guard each other's reputations. And then we have to deny ourselves and promote each other's welfare over our own welfare in the body of Christ. And again, it's our love by our love that the world will know that we really belong to Christ. I, I mean, again, in the world, there's not a whole lot of love by anybody. The world's looking for their own, out for their own. Everybody's scratching to get to the top. And there's just not a whole lot of love out there. And again, you come here, and there's a refreshing uh, grace in this room. There's a refreshing love 
Uh, somebody told me the other day, I thought it was great, uh, like an oasis, coming to an oasis. That's a, a, a tremendous picture uh, of just the kindness that God has given this fellowship that we just have to make sure that uh, we continue to f- foster and protect and, and pray that the Lord will help us live uh, appropriately. Right? God has loved us so much through Christ. We have to love each other and, again, keep doing that which is uh, good for each other in the body of Christ. Well, I could probably say more, got more notes, but I think that's enough. I, I think you get the point. Right? So this is where we're headed. How do you, how do we get along with each other in disputable matters? Things that aren't no black and white, but I have a preference, you have a preference. We realize that we come from a variety of different backgrounds. How do we continue to foster unity and make sure that we don't allow discord to ever come into the room? Because when that happens, then the gospel is compromised because people start arguing over preferences. All right, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for uh, our time together. Uh, the morning and our morning time and our evening time, we're thankful for the opportunity to, to worship you and thankful that you are the one who gives us that access by Christ and his shed blood. And we do realize, Lord, that it's a great privilege for us to worship. Uh, again, access to you is granted only by grace. Uh, we don't earn it. We haven't deserved it. Uh, we deserve condemnation, but you give us mercy over and over again. So help us to continue to be merciful towards each other. Uh, again, this is a sweet fellowship. I love this congregation, and I know you do too. And I just pray that you'd help us to be mindful as we work our way through these last uh, um, 36 verses of this section, just how great of a uh, issue Paul saw this to be, that he put so much emphasis on it, all these other great doctrinal truths that he only spent a few verses on. Again, nine topics. Uh, 35 or 36 verses, and here at the end, all these verses on uh, just making sure we protect the unity. So help us to do that. Help us to be diligent. Thank you again for our our fellowship. Thank you for the day of worship. What a great day it's been. Thank you for all the folks that uh, joined uh, in uh, uh, formal membership and the time we had to enjoy that uh, with them this afternoon. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.